0: Don't you love old hymns done up like that? I mean, I, I like familiar themes, and, and there's a certain uh, regal air about adding the orchestra to those, and it just makes it sound. I want to get up and go marching somewhere for Jesus. And uh, that's uh, the way I feel after I hear that. We have come in our series on Revelation to the book of, of uh, Revelation chapter 10. The entire 10th chapter carries the day. It is our text for the morning. There is one idea here that I want you to see that uh, everything else will hinge upon, and that is this. The angel who forms a central part of this vision in John's unfolding apocalypse in verse 5, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it that there should be delay no longer that time or Kronos should be no more that is no more time until something very significant happens and what is that? Verse 7 But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Many of us have an insatiable curiosity. There is a need to know. By the way, you who work for Piedmont, uh, not Piedmont, whatever, um, U.S. Air, is there any more scuttlebutt about what caused that accident in Pittsburgh? Everybody wants to know. What is the latest rumor? Have you heard anything? You know, when I was a boy, there was a party game that was played. Some of you remember this. They would take nine sheets of paper, and put three rows of three, and then they would let you pick one, and then somebody would come from the room outside, and he would always pick the one that you picked. How many of you have ever played that game? Oh, I was so confounded by that. I didn't know the secret of that game. And then one day somebody told me, wherever the person who is pointing what is the position on the first sheet he points to, then that's the sheet. Whenever he comes to that sheet, you'll know that's the right one. So if it points to the middle of the sheet, he might go to the one in the bottom corner, the top corner, and then when he goes to the one in the middle, you know that's the one because the sheet that was chosen is in position in the hole where he points to the first sheet. And I thought, that's wonderful. I've got the secret. When I finally was told that, you might have just turned a light on inside me. Oh, I know the secret. I felt like somebody had given me a million dollars. Of course, the secret I really liked was when I left the sixth grade and went to junior high. We had junior high. And I got into the seventh grade. And they invited me to a party at Bev Bartko's house. And then they brought everybody in and sat them around the edge and put a milk bottle in the middle. I never played this game before. And then they spun that milk bottle, and I waited six times for my turn. And then this boy and this girl would go into another room and close the door, and they would have 30 seconds by themselves. And I wondered, what's going on in that room? How many of you knew, when you were in the seventh grade, what was going on in that room? Did you know? And then it came my turn, and they spun this bottle, and it pointed to Bev Bartko. And they said, go in that room. And when I got in that room, she attacked me. (laughs) And I said, now I know what's been going on when they spin that bottle. Josh, you ever spin that bottle? (laughs) Come on, tell me the truth. Okay. I don't know if they even play. Do they play spin the bottle anymore? Lord, you ever play spin the bottle? You never played spin the bottle. Do they still play? No, they don't play it anymore. I shudder to think what they played today. (laughs) Let's move on. (laughs) But Moses questioned God, Lord, what are you going to do with me? Job questioned God, why? Why did you take my children? Why did you take my cattle? Why did you take my sheep and my house and my home? And even his wife said to him, what? Curse God and die. How do you face the mysteries of God? Another question would be, how do you face knowledge after you get it? You know, there are some things I don't want to know. Is that true in your life? I hope that's true in your life. I don't want to know everything you all are thinking right now. I wouldn't want to be able to read your motives. I wouldn't want to be able to see inside everybody's heart. That's a burden of knowledge I do not care to have. But in this vision of John in Revelation... There is a crescendo of powerful waves of knowledge that builds up through the seals and the trumpets. And the judgments of God build up and up and up till the time of Christ's coming. Now when you read Revelation, you'll say, why does he keep saying this or that? Well, he's driving home a very important point for us. Events are getting closer for the appearance on earth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that means right now that events on earth are getting closer to the appearance of the Antichrist. In the vision of the future, at this point, the Antichrist is ready to be unfolded on the earth. And in those final judgments will come God's answer to our deepest mysteries, and we'll know what the bottle was about all this time. For one of the messages of the angel that is a key character in this vision, one of the messages is the mystery of God is finished. Now, I want to show you four things in our text. First, there is the mighty angel, then the seven thunders, then the little book, and then the mysteries of God. Note the mighty angel, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And he had a little book in his hand open, and he set his right foot on the sea, left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice, who is this mighty angel? In chapter 5, there is a grand angel who asks the question, who is worthy to open the seals on this Biblion, this scroll, this book? Who is worthy? That angel could not have been the Lord Jesus Christ because he's answering that it is only Christ, the King, and the Lord who is worthy. There is the mighty angel who comes out of the sun rising from the east In chapter 7, I don't think that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, there is a mighty angel who takes the prayers of the saints to the altar of God. Do you remember that? I don't think that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who believe this is Christ. I don't quarrel with them. I simply don't believe it probably is. There is, I was reading, there is in Orthodox Christian history... A record of many who believe that that there were three great archangels. That Michael, whose name means one like God, was the assistant to God. Lucifer was the assistant to Christ. And Gabriel, who is the messenger archangel, was the assistant to the Holy Spirit, who carries messages to us, so Gabriel helps the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying that was a theory. It's an interesting theory, but there's nothing to support that in the Scripture. But I believe this is a mighty angel. It could well have been Gabriel because he has a message. But there is something about this angel that is so mighty, so dignified, so elegant. It is one of the grandest pictures drawn in all of apocalyptic literature. Think of it. He is a huge John Bunyan-esque-like figure in John's picture. And he comes down from heaven. Note first his appearance. The brightness of the sun on his face. The raging fire in his feet like the pillar of fire and the cloud by day that guided Israel and gave protection as well as guidance. Note the appearance of this grand, mighty angel who has an announcement to make. But notice his apparel. Around his shoulders is a cloud. He is robed with clouds. The sky floats over him as if a huge scarf had been placed on him. The rainbow forms on his head a diadem, a crown. Look at what is spoken of. The cloud, God's protection and glory. The rainbow, God's covenant, his faithfulness. Isn't that what the rainbow means? It's a sign of the covenant of God. The sky symbolic of the fact that God's power is universal and he controls everything. But look at his attitude. He places one foot on the ocean in verse 2 and one foot on the land. He stands on the world of waters and stands on the world of the solid ground. In most instances in the book of Revelation, The sea represents Gentiles and the land represents Israel. And when that mighty angel assumes that attitude, one land on the sea and one land on the earth, he is about to do something that relates to Israel and the Gentiles, and we'll see what that is in a moment. And then notice his actions. This giant, mighty, dignitary of an angel lifts his hand to heaven and raises it up to God, a sign of invitation. Oh, now, God, come into this world with your judgment. I watched as Catherine stood here singing. When I was a boy, the charismatic movement had not begun, and uh, uh, the holding up of hands like the Jewish Uh, people do. You know why people hold up their hands? To say, my hands are clean before you, God. And in the worship of the Lord, the the Jewish people have historically lifted up their hands to receive what God. Well, a lot of traditions, and Catherine, I came out of one where it was nothing in a little country church. When you were happy, you just raised your hand. Did you see what Catherine did when she sang? She was singing, he was here, hallelujah, he was here, praise God. And she lifted up her hand to heaven as if to say, oh, Lord Jesus, come and manifest your presence to us. And the angel lifted his hand to heaven as if to say, all right, God, come with your judgment. Come on into this world. But notice his address. He says two things. In verse 2, When he had that little book open in his hand and then verse 3, he cried with a loud voice and his voice sounded like a lion roaring and seven thunders uttered their voices and when John heard the seven thunders, he started to write, which leads me to believe that while he was getting this revelation, John was writing down what the Lord was telling him. He was writing it down. He didn't want to miss a thing. And when he started to write down what the seven thunders were, in verse 4, I heard a voice from heaven say to me, Oh no, John, don't write. Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea in the land lifted up his hand to heaven. And then he swore by him who lives forever and ever, Who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. And then the voice that he heard from heaven spoke to John again and said, Take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel. And I went to the angel and said, Give me the little book. And he said, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book, and it happened. Look in verse 7, though. The last thing, when the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the seventh angel is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. That is the last part of the message that the angel gives to John. The mystery of God is finished. Now, let's go to the seven thunders for a minute. First, the mighty angel. We've seen I think there's a good chance it could have been Gabriel, the messenger angel. But in any event, it's just as the scripture says. But the seven thunders, what are they? What are the seven thunders? He's saying, don't write. Don't write, John. I think it may be that God unfolded to John specifically some things that you and I may never know till we get to glory. But whatever they were, he said, don't write. Now, why would God not want us to know some things? Why would God not want John to write some things so that you and I can know? Folks, you and I have to remember that while the Bible is an open book and it is there for us to study, if you study this book for a lifetime, there will still be some things about the mysteries of God that you will never know. And God simply doesn't intend for you to know. He has never intended for you to know. And he told John, don't write these things. There are some things that man cannot stand to know. There are some things you cannot stand to know. There are some things about the truth you don't really want to know. You're better off not knowing them. And so it is with God. Now hold your hand here and go back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. I want you to watch what happened when God was finishing up his message to Daniel and the great vision. Notice what the Lord tells him in Daniel chapter 12. When when Daniel starts asking questions regarding the great time of trouble, which is the tribulation period, it's Daniel's week. In verse 5, I, Daniel, looked and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? How long will it take for these things to happen? And then Daniel said in verse 8, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? How shall these things The great tribulation, the prophetic events when judgment is poured out in wave after wave upon the earth. How shall these things be? And notice God's answer in verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end of time. Even for Daniel, there were answers to the questions of the mysteries of God that were sealed till the end of time. And for John, the revelator, there were answers to the questions about the mysteries of God that are sealed till the end of time. And for you and for me, there are answers to the mysteries of God which we shall never, ever know. God doesn't intend for us to know. We can no more handle the answers to those things than we can handle standing in the brightness of His full glory. It's too much. It's just too much. It's just too much. I can remember asking questions of my mother. My dad would be happy to answer your question and give you 25 answers to it, any man who can write 27 verses to, I won't have to cross Jordan alone, always has an answer. My father was never without words. And sometimes when I would ask him a question, I would get more answer than I wanted. But, but, uh, and I love him. I, I say that lovingly. But, you know, my mother, my mother would say, just do it because it's the right thing to do. And I would always ask as a child, I had an inbred curiosity. How many of you are like that? You want to know why everything works. I want to see inside everything. I want to know why it works. I want to know how an organization works. I want to know how did you get to that conclusion? So I would ask a lot of why questions. How many of you got a child that asks a lot of why questions? Why, why, why? And mom would say, All you need to know is that this is the right thing to do. And if I would press her, She had an answer, and here was her answer. Someday you will know. Someday you will understand. Even Daniel, even John, God said, seal up the thunderous answers. I think the explanation of God's judgment in this world was so thunderous. It was full and complete, but God said, no, John, you are not to write it. The third thing I want you to see in the text is the little book. The little book. Verse 2, he had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And then in verse 8, the voice from heaven said, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And then he said to me, now you must, emphatic, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and nations." And kings. Now, what is this little book? Now, go back to chapter 5. Do you remember in chapter 5, there was a scroll? There's no real reason why chapter 5 should translate in verse 1, this word, Biblion, scroll, and should translate little book over here. There is another form of Biblion over here in chapter 10 that is used. But they're the same word. Now, not all scholars agree on this, but let me just, let me take you where I am. I believe that that is the same book as chapter 5. Do you remember what that book was? That book was the scroll, the record of our sin in which we lost our inheritance. We were given the earth to have dominion, and we lost it through sin. That is the same book. THE SEVEN SEALS WERE open, SO NOW THE BOOK IS WHAT, CLASS? IT'S open IN CHAPTER 10. AND WHEN THAT BOOK IS OPEN, DETAILING OUR INHERITANCE, THAT THE DEVIL, THE GREAT USURPER, THE GREAT INTERLOPER HAD COME AND DECEIVED US AND CAUSED US TO SIN, SO WE LOST OUR INHERITANCE ON THE EARTH. MAN WAS TO BE KING OF THE EARTH AND WE LOST IT. NOW THE BOOK IS OPEN. And the angel says, as God finishes his judgment, God will reclaim what he lost when man sinned in Genesis chapter 3. And I think that's why the book is open. It is a record of what God is going to do to reclaim the lost earth. And so the angel is standing on land and sea, and he is reclaiming what was lost. It's an act of faith, of claiming back, symbolically claiming back. It's what Israel did when she marched around Jericho seven times. It is what God promised to Joshua. He said, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And every place that the sole of your foot shall tread, I will be with you and I will give it for an inheritance. Ladies and gentlemen, there are some things we've got to learn to claim. There are some things we have to believe God for and claim. And in this open book, God is claiming back the earth and the seas which have been lost in man's dominion. And it is God redeeming his lost creation by finishing up the judgment. Now, what does that mean? He took the book and ate it, and it was sweet as honey, and it was bitter in his stomach. I think the message of God always has two sides. The prophet's message always had two sides. There was the message of judgment and the message of promise. There was the message of justice and the message of hope. There was the message of judgment falling and there was the message of mercy. And I think that's exactly what is shown here. The judgment that God is going to pour out on the earth is vindication and justification for his own people of every age who want to know why. But it is, a, it is an answer, it is honey in the mouth. But it is woe and judgment to those who refuse the message of Christ. So we eat it and it is becoming bitter in the stomach. Now every one of us, if you've been to the fair, if you've ever been to the Dixie Classic Fair, you know what it is to eat something that tasted awfully good going down. But it lived with you for three weeks afterwards and it became bitter in your stomach. Is there anybody here who's never had that? How many of you have already been to the fair? Did you have my Polish kabasa when you got out there? How many already had one? I've been saving my cholesterol points. Steve Wallenhop isn't here, is he? I've been saving my cholesterol points to go out to the fair and have one more run at that. And, and, and uh, is Dr. Beard here? Don't. Is he here? Where is he? Oh, okay. Well, don't tell him. Just do it. I've been saving my cholesterol points. I gotta have one run to the fair. Amen. But we know what that means to eat and have something taste so good, but get in the stomach, and then it becomes bitter. Now hold your hand here and go back to the book of Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel had this, and I want you to see the meaning of all this. Go back to Ezekiel right before Daniel and go to Ezekiel chapter 2. And in Ezekiel chapter 2, look with me at what God told Ezekiel about his message. When I looked, Ezekiel 2.9, when I looked, and God is sending Ezekiel to Israel with a message of judgment, and he said, when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Why? That's the book of judgment. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and then go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with this scroll that I will give you. So I ate it, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words. Now notice, in both Ezekiel's experience and in John's experience, each prophet had to eat the word of God. And then came the command to go speak it. Now, not only does that speak of judgment and woe and mercy and grace, but it speaks of this, Sunday school teachers, you cannot dispense what you have not ingested. You cannot give off the word of God and teach it unless you have digested the word of God. Jeremiah said, Thy words did I eat, Lord, And they were food to my mouth. I believe that there is a process of the word of God that every preacher and every teacher must go through. And you can tell when a preacher is preaching and he hasn't digested the word. Have you ever had that experience? You can tell when a teacher is teaching and she has never digested the word. My wife will say to me, did you finish your outline for Sunday? She worries about my sermons more than I do. I said, honey, don't worry. Well, why don't you go ahead and finish? Because I said, I'm chewing it over. What are you talking about? I've got to digest it. I've got to let it sit. It's It's got to mold first before it becomes part of me. Do you understand what I'm saying? 35 years I've been trying to explain what it means to eat the Word of God and digest it and let it sit. And after it it sets for a while, then you're ready to preach it. I want to tell you folks, that's probably one of the great secrets behind spiritual maturity for any believer you want to read that Word of God and you wonder why it suddenly doesn't take action in your life. Sometimes the Word of God does, but most of the time you have to ingest the Word of God and practice it and make it a part of you. You cannot preach it until you've experienced it. You can't give it away until you've received it. You can't speak it out unless you have digested it, taken, eat the words of judgment. And then he said in Revelation 10, now you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now You are ready to preach, John. I must go to one last thing quickly, and that is the mystery of God. The message of the angel in verse 7 is in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel as the Antichrist is unveiled in the middle of that great period of tribulation. It's a time in the future, historically, the church will be raptured. He said the mystery of God would be finished. There are at least three aspects to the mystery of God. The first is in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Turn to it. And I'll show you the first aspect of the mystery of God. Throughout chapter 11, Paul talks about Israel being an olive branch. But God has stopped dealing with Israel for a while since she rejected her Messiah. And the church age is like a great parenthesis. But God is not done with Israel. He says in verse 1 of chapter 11, has God cast away Israel? No, God's not done. But look at verse 24. If you Gentiles were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own? He's saying that God took a period of time And there's a great parenthesis when he ceases working with Israel. And he works with the Gentile church. This is the church age. And we're grafted into Israel. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. This this thing which is hidden until the end. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When God is done working with the time of the Gentiles, when God is through working with a Gentile church, then God will go back and finish his work with Israel. And the great mystery of God is where is Israel in all of this? And the great mystery of God is that he's putting Israel and the church will be in glory together. And the great mystery of God is to understand that God is not through with Israel, He's coming back and when he's done with the Gentile church then he'll restore his work with Israel and that's the end time that's when the judgments will be poured out that's part of the mystery of God Second aspect of the mystery of God is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 there's another aspect of the mystery of God that we must not ignore In verse 51 Paul says behold I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now a second aspect of the great mystery of God is what happens to people who die before Jesus comes. And the clue to the future tribulation period and the, tr- the, the clue to the time when God will finish his judgment, the clue is we shall not all sleep. There is one generation that shall be alive when Jesus comes. The clue is that some of us will not have died when Christ comes. I would want that it's my generation, but it may not be mine. It may be your children's generation or your grandchildren's generation, but that's a part of the mystery of God. Why does God let believers die? Why does God not raise them up now? Why is he waiting? And it's all connected to the end time when God pours out judgment and brings justice on this earth through the tribulation period. It is a great mystery, but we shall not all sleep. There is a generation that will be alive, and when the Lord comes, we'll just be translated up into glory. That's part of the mystery of God. Why does he do it that way? The last part of the mystery of God is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yes, it is the mystery of lawlessness and sin reigning in this age. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, Paul in Thessalonians puts this end of the mystery of God right at the same time John does. He says that that day will not come in verse 3 until the falling away and the man of sin is revealed, the Antichrist. He'll exalt himself in the temple, the restored temple of Israel when God has finished with the blindness of Israel and starts working with her again. And then he says in verse verse 6, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is why does God allow sin to rule in this age? Why does God allow crime and violence? Why does God allow death? Why does God allow cancer? Some of you in this room have just received news. Why does God allow that? All the unanswerable questions. Why suffering? Why pain? Why difficulty? Why my children this? Why am I marriage that? The mystery of lawlessness. Why does God allow sin, death, and disease to keep on ruling? We know that it's to test man partly, but we still don't fully understand everything about the mysteries of God. But what that angel is saying is the mysteries of God are finished. Sin is over. The only thing sin will do beyond this point is The devil will be loosed for just a little season at the end of the millennial reign to test those who've never been tested. Folks, all the unanswerable questions are for the future. I don't understand them. I don't fully understand why you've experienced what you've been through. All those questions, the tragedy of mankind. But there is coming a day, just like my mother said, son, you'll know someday. You'll know someday. I don't understand why God let little Nicholas Seacrest be born and be given to to Steve and Mabel. I don't understand why they had, I don't understand why God took him. I don't understand little Abner's death that Troy and Abner have gone through this past week. I don't understand that. But you see, you don't have to know everything when you trust. Just like I trusted my mother and you trusted your father with the answers, the mystery of God will be unfolded. It'll all be open someday. And we shall know someday you will know. Someday it will be over. Someday it is done. Someday the cup of wrath is filled. What is my posture? How do I face those things I don't understand? I give life everything I've got just like this couple did for seven years in the life of, of Abner. You give it all you've got and if God chooses to interdict, then that's God's. And I'll go on trusting when I've done everything I can do to understand. If cancer strikes me, I'm going to do everything I can and then I'm going to leave the rest of God of what I don't understand. I'm going to wait for till Jesus comes. Do you understand? If they tell me I've got this heart, I'm going to do everything I can to keep that heart. I'm going to walk every day. I'm going to do everything I can to keep it functioning. Uh, But then I'm going to leave the rest to God. And all the unanswered questions are his to dictate when I get to glory. And let the word resound. The mysteries of God will one day be finished and the answers will come. You see through a glass darkly, but one day you're going to see him face to face. And when you see him face to face, God will give you the capacity to understand who he is and why he did what he did and why he let happen what he let happen. The message of the angel is a great message. It is a message to every one of us. Keep on keeping on when you don't understand why God does what he does. Because there's coming a day. And the angel planting his feet on the land and the sea, there's coming a day when he will declare and it will reverberate to the recesses of the universe. It is done. Time is over. The delay is up. The mystery of why I let sin go on is finished. I'll give you the answers. Amen and amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer. Father in heaven, Your insights into the future keep us encouraged. And there are folks here with questions. They don't understand why you've allowed things to happen in their lives. But today, would you build their faith? Perhaps that's why the Lord Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find us trusting you even when we don't have the answers to our questions? Today if there's somebody who's lost without Jesus, I pray that you will convict them of their sin, show them that Christ went to the cross. He's ready to reclaim that lost soul, that lost life with lost purpose and lost meaning, lost direction. Like the angel standing on the land and the sea, he wants to reclaim your earth, God. Show that sinner you want to reclaim his heart, his mind, his soul for eternity through the blood of the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. And draw them to yourself, I pray, in Christ's name, amen.